people win when there's universal health care without equivocation. The people win when every employee in this nation earns a living wage according to the economic realities where they live. I am not excited about milquetoast policies that don't get us to human flourishing. From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. A D.C. pastor says that even though the Democrats won the White House, the people must win human rights like health care and economic justice. And for the first F-word on fascism for the new year, I speak to National Coordinator of the Anti-War Answer Coalition, veteran activist Brian Becker, who gives his take on the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Now we see the fascist armed groups growing because they've been there for a long time. Donald Trump did not create them, but Trump gave them legitimacy. He gave them his blessing. And on January 6th, they were told, we're taking power. We're going to interrupt the lawful transference of one government to another by means of the lawful certification of the Electoral College. And Trump convinced them January 6th was election day, not November 3rd. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. With at least 15,000 National Guard troops already camped out at the U.S. Capitol, and that number expected to swell to 26,000 by the inauguration on January 20th, it is not an overreach to say that the U.S. has lost a cornerstone of democracy, the assumption of a peaceful transfer of power. The disarray among government officials and elites in the days after the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol was somewhat put in check this week. On January 13th, the House of Representatives impeached Donald Trump for inciting an insurrection when he urged his supporters to march to the Capitol and fight like hell to take back their country. Also, six days after the soft coup, the FBI held its first press conference and announced that conspiracy and sedition might actually be charged against the marauders instead of just trespassing. CEOs of major corporations said they may begin withdrawing monetary support from Republicans who backed Trump's effort to overturn the presidential election of Joe Biden. And it seems like these millionaires may have an opportunity to act on their threat. Not only did the Republican National Committee choose Trump as the leader of their party at their recent winter meeting, despite the insurrection, not only are some Republican members of Congress still repeating the false allegation that the election was stolen, but the harrowing attack has many Democrats wary of the possible collusion in the attack by other members of Congress or by law enforcement or by Trump appointees at the Department of Defense. Representative Mikey Sherrill, a member of the new group of former CIA and military members of Congress, accused fellow members of Congress of giving some coup plotters a tour of the Capitol the day before the attack. So not only do I intend to see that the president is removed and never runs for office again and doesn't have access to classified material, I also intend to see that those members of Congress who abetted him those members of Congress who had groups coming through the Capitol that I saw on January 5th, a reconnaissance for the next day, those members of Congress that incited this violent crowd, those members of Congress that attempted to help our president undermine our democracy, I'm going to see that they're held accountable and, if necessary, ensure that they don't serve in Congress. 
perhaps in response to the noted presence of police and military personnel in the January 6th mob, all eight members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff sent out a letter this week to the entire U.S. military and warned service members not to do anything to impede President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration, reminding that such an act would amount to sedition and insurrection. But it is not just the Capitol, but all of the District of Columbia that is impacted when swarms of violent right-wing extremists invade the nation's capital. Organizations such as Shutdown D.C., Black Lives Matter D.C., and Unite Here Local 25, which represents more than 7,000 hotel workers in Washington, has called for hotels in the region to close immediately in anticipation of potential violence. John Boardman, the union's executive secretary treasurer, said in a statement on Wednesday, quote, We continue to hear reports of armed far-right militias planning to threaten Washington in the days ahead. Given the danger and fluidity of the situation, the best way to guarantee the safety of hotel workers and district residents is to keep these groups out of the city and out of its hotels, end quote. Nini Tay, core organizer for Black Lives Matter DC, spoke at the Thursday press conference for Don't Host Hate. You're at the Hilton. I was personally attacked in Tigas, Water Hilton, Hosted white supremacists without masks on their property, and the police protected them and, and shot tear gas to organize who was just trying to defend DC. We need you, hotels, declare that your establishment is racism free zone. We need you, DC hotels, today and going forward. Notify all your guests. That white supremacists are not permitted on your premises. We need you to buy guns and explosives from your premises. We need you to displace Black Lives Matter signs and stand in solidarity against and support Indian police and state sanctioned violence against Black people in our Black community. The Reverend William Lamar, pastor of Metropolitan AME Church, one of the historic black churches in D.C. vandalized by the group called the Proud Boys on December 12th said at a January 9th rally that the failure to arrest all of those who participated in that vandalism emboldened groups like the Proud Boys to come back on January 6th and attack the Capitol. We'll hear from Reverend Lamar after the headlines. In other D.C. area public safety news, Silver Spring Justice is calling for an investigation into 24-year-old Kwamina Okran being shot to death by Gaithersburg, Maryland, plainclothes police officers on January 8th. The impact of the United States abroad, especially in Iran and Venezuela, was the subject of an online event. Chantel James reports. With the United States recently issuing new sanctions on Venezuela and Iran, the Council on Hemispheric Affairs hosted a discussion this week on alliances that have been forged between the two nations in the face of hostility. Panelists were Dan Kovalik, who teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, and Fuad Zadi, who teaches American Studies at the Faculty of World Studies, University of Tehran. 
Speaking to the more than 50 participants from Tehran, Izadi outlined the history of U.S. aggression against Iran and of the partnership Venezuela has offered in light of their shared struggle. Two people, in, people in Iran and people in Venezuela, basically suffering from the same policies, they are going to try to unite to fight against this type of policies. And that's what has happened. So we had, uh, in 2001, President Hugo Chavez uh, visiting Iran for the first time. Uh, and then uh, every year or so, he continued to come to Iran. And then you had Iranian presidents visiting. Uh, as you know, the economic linkage is quite extensive. And Iran is honored to be able to help the Venezuelan people with the gasoline that they need, with the technical assistance that they need, uh, and it, it is a responsibility of not just Iran, but other countries to help the people who are suffering. And, and they're suffering because you have sanctions and difficulties that the United States has created. As regards what we can expect from the Biden administration on sanctions, Izadi cautions that empty representation of minority groups among his appointees will not bring change unless a shift in ideals away from profiting on war also takes place. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. And for more international news, I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of African American History at the University of Houston. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Well, thanks for inviting me. Well, your favorite person, Mike Pompeo, has been very busy in the last days of the Trump administration. He's been putting Cuba back on the list for being a state sponsor of terrorism. He's been increasing sanctions on Iran. Some believe that with all his rhetoric, he's trying to actually even perhaps still start a war with Iran. Just so many different things. And we've talked about Mike Pompeo several times on the show as he reportedly wants to run for president in four years. So what's your take on this furious activity by Pompeo with less than a week to go before he doesn't have a job anymore? Well, in this tidal wave of news and breaking headlines that emerged over the past week, somehow lost is one of the most important stories I think of some time, which is that Mike Pompeo was planning to cap his tenure as Secretary of State by making a triumphant trip to Western Europe. But many of the governments there refused to meet with him, presumably because they see him as a creature of a coup-plotting regime that sought to execute a so-called self-coup in order to remain in power illegitimately. Mm -hmm. uh, this reportedly included leaders of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which the United States is thought to dominate. And I thought that that was a very important signal because, as you know, we're pursuing this case at the Human Rights Council of the United Nations, seeking ultimately, in the best case scenario, to have sanctions imposed on the United States government because of its terroristic treatment of black people with regard to police misconduct and police terror. And the fact that these 
governments and organizations would not meet with him and were shunning him is a very good signal, a very good sign in that regard. And it also feeds into something we've also talked about, which is the reluctance of the European Union to sign on to this new Cold War with China. A reference here, the investment deal signed between Brussels and Beijing. So Mr. Pompeo, it seems, is exiting his office with egg on his face. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the snub by the Europeans because one report I saw uh, talked about how he's been tweeting furiously up to a dozen or two dozen tweets a day and saying that he was trying to basically write the first draft of his own history as the uh, Secretary of State, basically putting his spin on, you know, what a great job he's done. And and there was even a mention in the same article referring to these tweets on a government account relating it to the his misuse of government resources in the past, you know, to have, you know, his security detail picking up his dry cleaning and I guess walking his dog or whatever and how uh, he's basically uh, keeping up the bad habits up until the very end. Well, I would hope that someone in the State Department, perhaps one of the officials who filed a memorandum in the so-called dissent channel upbraiding Mr. Pompeo for not speaking out more aggressively against the self-coup on January 6th, I would hope someone investigates this recent story from Yahoo News that suggests in the weeks leading up to January 6th, from Western Europe, there was a transfer of Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency, in the amount of about $500,000 into the virtual wallets of leading right-wing figures in the United States. And there was speculation as to whether or not that funding was used to fuel the alleged uh, plotters in the self-coup on January 6th. Now, uh, this is a very important story. It's a very explosive story. It's an international story because the money was apparently transferred from Western Europe. And uh, under ordinary circumstances, you could expect, I imagine, that somebody in Washington would look into this. But obviously, we're living in extraordinary times, so there's no guarantee. Right. Well, I guess the whole theme of this conversation is that instead of looking inward and doing his job to being a diplomat for the American people, he's out there trying to lay landmines, uh, some say, uh, for the incoming Biden administration so that Biden cannot restore relations with Cuba, so that Biden cannot reenter the Iran nuclear deal, and, or to basically, not that he can't, but to make it more difficult for him. Well, it puts a twist on that old Cuban joke, which is, why is it that there's so much instability politically in Latin America and Africa compared to the United States? And the answer is there is no U.S. embassy in Washington. Uh-huh. Well, that <laughs> joke rings a bit too true nowadays because I think that one of the lessons that's emerging from January 6th is not only the fact that many of those who invaded the Capitol 
had ties to various governmental entities, uh, police departments, firefighting departments, the U.S. military, at least in terms of retired military officers as reported by the New Yorker, but also their paymasters. That is to say, people flying in on private planes from Texas to join into the fray, a CEO of a leading U.S. corporation apparently involved in the fray. And so what's happening clearly in this country is that chickens are coming home to roost. Not only are those who have honed to perfection the modus operandi of overturning governments abroad have turned those diabolical skills back against their homeland, but in part it's a reflection of the fact that these folks who have been overturning governments in Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere have found that the sledding may be a bit too tough, and so now they've turned their sights on their homeland, where I guess they feel that the pickings will be easier. And all of that argues clearly for an exhaustive investigation, not only by the U.S. Congress, and by the way, it's apparent that many of the members' lives were in jeopardy on January 6th, but also by independent organizations, by the U.S. press, by the Western European press, the international press, because this event of January 6th ultimately will impact the everyday lives of not only people in the United States, but worldwide. All right. Well, we hope to be a part of the peeling back the onion because I, I believe what you say. I agree with you that the, the layers go deep. And I think it's only going to be independent organizations and independent media that will help to really uncover what really happened. So we will definitely continue to discuss it in the coming weeks. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for, for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. Back in the United States, the Biden administration unveiled a $1.9 trillion stimulus plan on Thursday that would send an additional $1,400 in direct stimulus payments to Americans and boost unemployment assistance by $400 each week. In Michigan, activists are outraged that former Governor Rick Snyder is being hit with only two misdemeanor charges for his role in the Flint water crisis that lead poisoned a generation of children and caused untold death and disease. In Minnesota, indigenous water protectors were arrested Thursday when they locked themselves together inside a pipe segment to halt construction for Enbridge's Line 3 oil pipeline project. And finally, for culture and media, a few items in This Week in History. On January 11, 1964, the U.S. Surgeon General declared cigarettes may be hazardous to health, the first time a government official ever did so in a published report. And on January 15, 1961, that great female group of the 1960s, the Supremes, signed with Motown. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
I'm sorry. I'm sure. Esther Rivera. I'm from On the Ground on WPFW. Okay. Pacifica Radio. Sure. So I wanted to get my one question in. When you started talking, there was a lot of music, and I couldn't hear the point you were making around bearing witness. Yeah, so, around, yep, so my comment was, I'm always clear when I do this kind of work that I do not do it alone, that the ancestors are with us, and we are continuing their work. So I began with Ida Wells, who bore witness against lynching and economic violence against black people. Then moved to Fannie Lou Hamer, who bore witness against fascist voter suppression and white supremacist uh, activity in Mississippi. And so I stand as their child, as their son, that the bearing witness is the first step in building a new world. So we can't be quiet. We've got to get in the streets and we got to be clear that we can live differently, but the people have to do what's necessary to show that we will build a different world. And that's the bearing witness. You know, one thing, one more thing. Sure. This is a real kind of democratic party town. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so you have a lot of people who think that Biden's victory means that everything's over. No. And you have a lot of people who, and I, I, I think, if, I could be wrong, I think if you're having a conservative congregation. No, um, no, okay. no, no, they put so, up with me, so no. Right, so um, talk about that and, and, yeah. and how you feel about this kind of sense that, you know, okay, we won, you know, y'all, you're, you're making too much noise. Well, what, well we got to be very clear. The Democratic Party won, but we got to be sure that the people win, mm -hmm. all right? So the people win when there's universal health care without equivocation. The people win when every employee in this nation earns a living wage according to the economic realities where they live. I am not excited about milk toast policies that don't get us to human flourishing. So we got to be clear about is there is a clear difference between Trump and Biden. And if you must choose, definitely Biden is a choice. But the only way to get Biden and Harris and the Democrats to do what is necessary is for us to organize and to put pressure on them. It is, we have not won anything until human beings get the things that I mentioned and so much more. We got a lot of work to do. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. No, they look. They're not conservative. No, no conservative <laughs> church. Let the pastor come out and hang out here. Okay. All right. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, since a violent mob attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, there have been a number of commentators, pundits, journalists agonizing over the rise of fascism in the United States. So for this month's episode of The F Word on Fascism, I'm speaking to Brian Becker, National Coordinator of the Answer Coalition, and that's Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. And the Answer Coalition initiated a massive U.S. anti-war movement opposing the U.S. invasion of Iraq in the months prior to March 19, 2003. 
And as a part of that movement, the Answer Coalition was a part of massive demonstrations at the U.S. Capitol. And so Brian certainly knows a lot about demonstrations at the Capitol and how people on the left obviously are treated. So I want to welcome you to the show, Brian. Very glad to be here. Thank you, Esther. Well, as I mentioned, there have been several commentators uh, talking about the rise of fascism in the United States. And for example, the, the author and analyst Walden Bello has uh, written a piece saying that we are entering the a frightening Weimar era, referring to the era in Germany before the rise of Nazis. I've heard other people uh, give other types of uh, analysis based on what happened on January 6th. So because of your you know long-time activism on the left, I, I thought that I would give you a chance to talk about your reaction to January 6th and what it means to you and, and what it means in terms of fascism in the United States. Well, thank you, Esther. It certainly does demonstrate there, that there is a significant fascist force in the United States. Not all the people who voted for Trump and not all the people who came to the protest on January 6th are fascists, but the people who stormed the Capitol building the people who came to fight, the people who brought weapons of all sorts, guns, bombs, knives, uh, pipes, those who intended to breach the Capitol, take it over, take members of the Congress a prisoner or hostage, and who expected that their leader, Donald Trump, would meet them at the Capitol, as he promised to do at the rally that was held right beforehand at the Ellipse, 17 blocks west of the Capitol, those people who organized that part of the, the takeover of the Capitol, they are fascists. And there are armed militias throughout the United States. They're white, 99% white armed militias. They have deep connections to different police forces, including the police force right here in Washington, D.C. The exercise of that particular tactic, the mob storming a citadel on January 6th, that, that resonates. That's not a new thing in American history. When we go back and look at how that little period of reconstruction after 18, from 1865 to 1875 in southern states, the glimmer of hope, the promise of freedom for black people in the South, that came to an abrupt halt when the, the mob, the white supremacist mob, was able to overwhelm the formerly enslaved people, especially as northern military units were withdrawn. All of them were withdrawn in 1876 in another disputed election. So mob action in America resonates. It's, it's part and parcel of it. And it's also interesting when we're thinking about fascism to recognize that when Hitler and the Nazis in Germany were developing the racial element of their program. They had different parts of their program. They sounded very anti-establishment. They were against the banks. They were against the big corporations. They even called themselves the National Socialist German Workers Party because so many workers and poor people and even small business people in Germany were pro-socialist because socialism had deep roots in Germany. The left-wing Socialist Party was the largest party in Parliament by 1910. But they started to agitate against the Jewish bankers, and they developed the idea of a master race. Well, uh, it's quite 
uh, known that uh, they built their program by studying the legal codes of the Jim Crow South here in the United States. The American germ of fascism is the erection of a white supremacist police state model that was created 200 years before this country became a state, before it became a republic. Nazi jurists took inspiration not only from the Jim Crow South, but the genocide and internment of indigenous peoples and the segregation of Asian people in the West here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And records reflect that there were high-level meetings where Nazi officials clearly considered the American example as the most relevant legal model for their new Nazi fascist state. And frankly, the admiration went both ways. The New York Bar Association, not the Alabama Bar Association, the New York Bar Association actually had a big celebration for Nazi lawyers and legal officials right after their infamous Nuremberg rally. And all types of American high officials and leading industrialists here in the United States associated themselves with Hitler's new regime. That included, by the way, John Foster Dulles. And we fly out of Washington's John Foster Dulles Airport, he was a Nazi sympathizer. So was his brother, Alan Dulles. And so was, of course, Henry Ford from the, you know, the founder of Ford. So fascism in Germany has a historic and actual organic link back to America's racial policies. And, and of all of the ironies, when you think about it, is that the American people went to war against fascism and fascism was based on the Aryan white master race. But American troops could not be integrated units when they fought. Uh, The American military armed forces only desegregated in 1948, and that created the the breakaway of the Democrats in the South who created the Dixiecrat Party, Strom Thurmond's party. Ironically, Strom Thurmond became a close friend of Joe Biden once Biden became a freshman senator from Delaware. But my point is, fascism has always existed here, it, it takes on different names. And right now we see the fascist armed groups growing because they've been there for a long time. Donald Trump did not create them, but Trump gave them legitimacy. He gave them his blessing. He himself may not be an ideological Nazi. He's actually not. He's an opportunist. But he's willing to use the fascists, and they're willing to use him. And on January 6th, they were told, we're taking power. We're going to interrupt the uh, the lawful transference of one government to another by means of the lawful certification of the Electoral College. And Trump convinced them January 6th was election day, not November 3rd. And they just had to get to the Congress and stop the fraud, stop the steal in three uh, disputed states. And they came to fight and he told them fight. And, and Giuliani said it's going to be trial by combat. And the fact that they could breach the Capitol shows that they had a lot of support from within different police commands and also within the Pentagon, which refused to to offer reinforcements either before or even during the breach. The Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of the Army said no when the Capitol Police Chief, Stephen Sun, now resigned, uh, pleaded with them for help. And they said no. Well, how can you explain the failure to send reinforcements when U.S. Congress people are hiding, cowering, fearing for their lives as a violent mob races through the place, and how can you not immediately offer reinforcements? It shows that what happened on January 6th was part of a seditious conspiracy 
and the frontline fighters were in fact the fascists. When people talk about January 6th and the history that you've outlined, you know, violence is highlighted. And so on this series, we've kind of talked about the relationship of corporations and how corporate, you know, fascism happens when corporations are really running government. And I think it's a lot easier for people to kind of recognize this type of violence as opposed to the type of violence that is put upon most of us, you know, by corporations in terms of, you know, lack of health care or, you know, being homeless or the type of violence inflicted on uh, immigrants at the border and private prisons. Just even during the pandemic here, how it's just taken as a given that, you know, what, nearly 400,000 people have died and people are out of work and, and people have no means. But that violence is somehow not depicted in the same way. People don't have the same visceral reaction to it, maybe because the, maybe the corporate media doesn't report it. But uh, just talk a, bit, a little bit about the relationship of corporations and I guess neoliberalism to, to fascism as opposed to what people identify as fascism, which is the, the violent mob. Right. Those are important and complex issues, I think. The way I look at it, I come from a sort of a particular vantage point on this, is is this, that the people are suffering every day from capitalism and the corporations and the banks, which are dominant and which accrue and aggregate all the wealth. And they get to decide whether working people have a job or don't have a job. They get to decide, unless there's a militant union, what the wage is going to be. If they're a landlord, they decide whether you're going to get pushed out of your apartment. If you're a bank or you have a mortgage, the banker really can decide whether or not uh, you get kicked out of your home, as we saw in 2009 and 10 during the Great Recession. Nine million families were pushed into foreclosure. Three million families lost their home. 50 million Americans right now are hungry. 50 million. They're, quote, food insecure, which is a modern-day sort of dressed-up euphemism for hung being hungry. And that's a kind of everyday violence. You know, that's a, that's a form of violence. And it's imposed by the capitalist system. Let's put it this way. The corporations need a government that serves their interests. And as such, the government, whether it's a liberal democratic government, a neoliberal government, a military dictatorship, a fascist government, whatever the form is, and the forms differ, they enforce a system which is a kind of organized crime and a kind of organized violence against the poor. For anyone who's like living in Washington, D.C. right now where it's cold, just think if you're homeless. Isn't that a kind of violence where we have abundant housing that's where nobody lives, warehoused luxury apartments and hotels that have no tenants, and yet some people are living on the street when it's below freezing, that's violence. But I do distinguish between the structure of society, which is the capitalist system dominated by those corporations, and the form of government. Fascism, my definition, my sort of working definition of fascism, is a regime that has been created by the corporate capitalists when they are no longer able to use the normal democratic forms of government to maintain social control and social domination over the oppressed classes. 
So in the case of Germany, for instance, the industrialists, the corporations, and even the the top military in Germany back in 1932 and, and before the German or Prussian military was very an independent institution with great authority, independent authority. They normally ruled over German society using democratic forms of government, but the same kind of violence was visited, the kind of violence we're talking about happened to people routinely. But when the left, the communists and the socialists got strong, the right was also getting strong because there was a profound economic crisis. It was the 1930s. There was the imposition of sanctions from the Versailles Treaty because Germany lost World War I. When that unresolved social and economic crisis uh, kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, the Nazis came in and glorified violence to make it clear that they would use any and all means to crush unions, to crush socialists, to crush communists. And the industrialists who kind of thought badly of the Nazis, they thought they were plebeian, like sort of low class kind of scum in a way compared to the big bourgeoisie. They decided they were going to rely on fascist methods to crush the workers movement because the workers movement was getting strong and they couldn't destroy it. So then the German industrialists gave Hitler the power. Remember, Hitler did not seize seize power. It wasn't a fascist revolution or counter-revolution or seizure of power. He was appointed chancellor by Hindenburg, who was sort of like, you know, a George W. Bush or George H.W. Bush type politician. And then the industrialists said to Hitler, look, the Nazis can share power with us. You help destroy the left and we'll have this great coalition government. But then it turned out that within a year, fascism destroyed everything that was an obstacle to its complete and absolute domination. So it destroyed the unions, it destroyed the Communist Party, the Socialist Party, the Liberal Party. Ultimately, the industrialists and corporations thought they could tame Hitler, but Hitler tamed them. Hmm. He let them stay in power, they retained their profits and privilege, but he was the boss. And that's how fascism came to dominate. So by 1938 and 39, the genocide against Jewish people starts, the genocide against Roma people, the genocide against poorer people from Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe who were considered the other, the immigrants, and of course the communists and socialists were also the victims of genocide. So fascism is not, from my point of view, not simply corporate domination, but it's corporate domination when it can no longer exercise its normal violent control over society by democratic means, and it sort of devolves to a less or a more barbaric methods. And that's why I think we actually have a great interest in stopping fascism. I'm an anti-capitalist, I'm a socialist, but I also distinguish between capitalism that still has some modicum of civil liberties and civil rights, as, as limited as they are, to the absolute fascist terror that would be imposed on all Uh, should fascism come to power. So we have to remember this. Germany was not a right-wing country. It was a progressive country, but still Nazism triumphed. That's why we should not uh, trivialize what happened on January 6th. Fascism, as I said, has deep roots in the history of white supremacy in America. And because there's unresolved social and economic problems, they are organizing and Donald Trump helped them just as he was helped by them. So earlier you said that fascism needs a leader, and you also described how you don't really think that Trump is an ideological fascist. 
So I want you to talk a little bit about that because people are calling Trump a fascist. So why do you think he's not one? And then also include what is the struggle that is happening right now within the Republican Party, because we just saw recently they had their winter meeting and they even after this attack on the Capitol, you know, selected Trump as their party leader. (laughs) And on the other hand, you have Republicans in Congress, including, according to one report, Mitch McConnell, ready to support impeachment of Donald Trump. So it seems that what's happening in the Republican Party is an important site of struggle around this uh, emerging fascism or, or this new phase of of uh, developing fascism in the United States. And so that's the second part. And then I guess I just want to end with what the left needs to do to organize right now, because we can't just let all the struggle be happen within the Republican Party, obviously. And I want to know how important you think the what what can happen on the street in terms of the left is important right now in terms of what we fight for and how we resist what is happening uh, on the right. Yeah, those are super important questions. In in terms of how I would characterize Trump, Trump is, I, I said he's not an ideological Nazi. He is a white racist. He is a white racist, and he's been, there's been, that gives him something very in common with the organized fascist forces. And he's willing to use them because he needed, like on January 6th, he needed real fighters who would come out and storm the Capitol. All of that happened by plan. I mean, the Capitol is, could be and would have been a heavily defended entity. It has 2,300 police officers whose only job is to defend the building. They didn't even set up significant fencing. And there was all this talk ahead of time that the Capitol was going to be breached. And no reinforcements came, as I said. So it happened by design. Uh, Trump was willing to, to work with them. Remember in the debate with Biden, one of the presidential debates, Biden, or maybe it was the show host, asked him, will you repudiate white nationalists? And he said, on the contrary, Proud Boys stand down or stand by or stand ready. Um, You know, whatever it was, he was like, get ready for battle. They're they're my troops. They're my frontline Gestapo. And uh, that was quite remarkable for the president of the United States to talk that way about a group that's openly racist, openly anti-Semitic. openly fascist really and so he's supporting them and they're they need when i say they need a leader fascism always in order to crystallize into a unified national movement needs national leadership there's all kinds of trends and tendencies and factions amongst the fascists they'll fight each other constantly as well trump by being the president of the united states and being willing to work with them provided a kind of legitimacy so that the fascists could be Trump supporters. They could be mega people. They could wear the red hats. They didn't have to wear, you know, clans robes and hoods or parade around with the swastika, which would be more isolating. So it gave the fascists a kind of legitimacy and a bigger sea to swim in. And that's why they needed Trump. And right now, now that the ruling class after a week of being paralyzed and uncertain about how to react to this unprecedented fascist uprising that seized temporarily control of the Congress, the ruling class capitalist factions are coming together. The military issued a statement on January 12th uh, to all 1.3 million members of the military force telling them the violent riot in Washington, D.C. on January 6th 
was a direct assault on the U.S. Congress, the Capitol building, and our constitutional process. They characterized it as sedition and insurrection and reminded members of the armed forces uh, that's illegal and you'll be punished. You have all the capitalist corporations and banks like Deutsche Bank and Signature Bank who had been Donald Trump's financial lifeline when he was a bankrupt businessman three times. They extended uh, Deutsche Bank $2.1 billion in loans to Trump when no other American bank would lend to him. They've cut their ties. He's been banned from Twitter and Facebook, uh, different, all kinds of different corporations saying, we're not doing business with Donald Trump, right? And then the FBI finally, after a week, said, okay, we're going to go after the attackers of the Capitol for sedition and conspiracy that carries 20 years in prison. If there's a conspiracy, who's the leader of it? Well, of course, Trump was the instigator of it. They all came to Washington because he organized that. So what's happening now is that Trump is backing up. You see the speech he made on Wednesday. He went on TV and said, uh, we're going to come after anybody who committed uh, violence at the Capitol. And he was all talking sweetness and light, but toughness against the people who made the attack. He kind of threw his fascist allies overboard because he's in a corner right now. And he's really in a corner because there are also defections from within the Republican Party establishment. Liz Cheney is number three in the House. The fact that 10 members of the Republican Party in the House voted for uh, impeachment, that might not sound like money, but remember, there were no Republicans who voted for impeachment last year, and there was only five Democrats who voted for the impeachment of Bill Clinton in 1998. So 10 Republicans from the party of the impeached person is, is more. And McConnell hates Trump, and Trump hates McConnell. Uh, the, the gang, the fascists, were, they were all chanting, uh, hang Pence, hang Pence. They were also, get McConnell, find McConnell. McConnell needs Trump to have his grip over the Republican Party loosened. I think what McConnell really wants is for Trump to be indicted by the government. That way it won't be on his shoulders to get rid of Trump by impeachment. If the FBI arrests Trump for seditious conspiracy or the New York State Attorney General does for financial crimes, then Trump is basically finished. I mean, I think he's finished anyway politically. And that's why he's trying to like sort of distance himself right now from the fascists and try to hold on to whatever he can hold on to. But it's going to be very, very hard for Trump. So what happens in the Republican Party once because Trump was so popular with the Republican voters and it really became his party. Unless Trump is taken down, the Republican establishment has a hard time breaking from him. Yes, there are 100 plus members of the House of Representatives who are like real hardcore ultra rightists, maybe fascists themselves. They're like the true mega Trumpites. But Mitch McConnell, not so much. Liz Cheney, obviously not. Uh, remember, there was an anybody but Trump movement within the Republican Party before he won the nomination in 2016. I think a big part of the Republican establishment now would like to have the events of January 6th and the fallout be a way to get rid of Trump so that they can take control of the party once again. Okay. Well, we're rapidly running out of time, but if you want to add anything about what the left can do right now, the side of struggle can't only be within the Republican party. You know, what can the left do right now in this time period to press for what the people need. Yeah, of course, that's the the biggest and most important thing of all. If you think back to the last eight months, Esther, 
our movement, the movement against police brutality and against racism, it crystallized into an unprecedented nationwide uprising against racism. And 35 million people were in the streets at the end of May and June and July. The police used tear gas and pepper spray and rubber bullets in more than 100 cities. But the movement still kept coming out, and it wasn't really driven out of the streets. But like all movements, it, it sort of has ebbs and flows, and COVID was certainly a deterrent. Other things happened, but the movement kind of wound down by the end of the summer. And then suddenly, a couple months later, you have these fascists uh, who have the momentum. And they're like, instead of you know tens of thousands in Washington, black and white and Latino standing together, against racism it's been proud boys here for a couple months right. and the people fighting the proud boys have been small in number so it's kind of the ebb and flow of the movement so what i think will happen is this phase will give way and a new phase will emerge and ultimately we have to defeat fascism not by the democratic party not by the fbi no that's not going to happen uh back on in august 2018, when fascists were coming to celebrate the one-year anniversary of Charlottesville, Answer Coalition and others, but Answer in particular, organized a demonstration at Lafayette uh, Park where the fascists were going to be, and we had 15,000 people that day. I mean, people came from everywhere. Everybody converged on Lafayette Park. And so you can see that I think that's the way to defeat the Proud Boys. That's the way to defeat the fascists is by having large-scale, massive, multiracial mobilizations of the people where the unions and, and community groups and peace organizations and student groups and, and everybody who is will be the victim of fascism would it, should it succeed coming together in a united front. And at the same time, what I think will happen starting fairly soon is that as Biden comes in, unless Biden takes radical measures to speak to the 50 million who are hungry, the 40 million who are facing eviction, the, you know, the people who are still losing their jobs. The new jobs report came out yesterday, 900,000 people applied for unemployment in the last week. Those radical New Deal type social programs, which are truly achievable and realizable, even under the capitalist system, they have to be implemented, but our movement must demand them. We must be in the streets demanding them. And that's the best way to fight not only fascism, but the capitalist system and both ruling class parties whose policies give rise to fascism. All right. Okay, well, this is obviously a conversation that could go on and we will pick it up again. But for now, I'll have to say thank you to Brian Becker, National Coordinator of the Answer Coalition. That means Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. Thank you for joining me today for uh, this segment of the F Word on Fascism. Thank you, Esther. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. Special thanks to Chantel James, Thomas O'Rourke, and Lydia Curtis for their contributions to the show. At onthegroundshow.org, that's our website, you can check out all of our current and past shows. They're archived there. Uh, you can contact us and support us. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash on the ground show to support us and also like us on Facebook and Twitter at on the ground show. Our new podcast on the ground W Esther Averam is available on all your podcast platforms. 
Our new podcast, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground. The music we played this hour included Race Babbling by Stevie Wonder, Panamonk by Danilo Perez, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivera. My exhibit, Memory and Signal, honoring the life and legacy of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., is at the gallery of the Anne Marie Sculpture Garden in Solomons, Maryland, until the end of February. And I'll be hosting three free virtual art workshops this holiday weekend. You can find MLK Days 2021 under events at annemariegarden.org. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material or you can see all the ways to support including end of the year giving and paypal on our website which you know is on the ground show dot org thank you <laughs>